This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, where did you get all this polyester from? It's just, I don't know. You don't have this much poly. How much polyester are we talking about? I think any polyester is too much polyester. Why are you wearing bell bottoms? Well, bell bottoms are back, baby. I don't know. And I mean, I think it might just be a, a little culturally insensitive for you to be trying to grow an afro. I don't know. What is this? Well, f- as in Korean, we call it a pama. Is, isn't that a large cat? On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm still Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. So somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. Uh, But the machine is still threatening our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. And today we're going to be talking about the film Shaft. Up yours! Get out of the way! Can't say you're gonna be here, he should be here. Open it up. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. Can't say you're gonna be here. And he ain't. It ain't right. Oh. Wait. Um, I should point out right here at the very top. I want to give a huge thank you to Cole Young for making our new theme music that you would have heard at the beginning of this episode. He made it this 70s funky sound, so very appropriate for the movie that we're going to be watching today, but also for the rest of our discussion of 1971. And oh, we should also thank our patron, Green Girl YYC. Ooh. Dave, what do you have to say about that? Uh, you're awesome. And thank you for allowing us to eat today. I think we have to start here in our discussion of Shaft, and I know you hate when I try and, uh, you know, uh, stop any letters from coming in, Dave. We're probably not the greatest people to talk about black exploitation in and of itself. I'm, I'm, I'm an apologist that way, but we're going to do our very best. I want to start here, Dave. What is your history with black exploitation, the character of Shaft, and then this movie specifically? Almost nothing. I, I've never watched this movie. I think we all know... I guess they call it a meme now, but the character of Shaft um, as sort of made fun of really in the 90s. Um, we know Isaac Hayes. We know the song. I've never watched it. And then as far as black exploitation is concerned, I don't even understand yet what uh, that term actually refers to. I think that my era growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, the films of black culture were more just your typical gang, well, what became typical gangster films or comedies. But I suspect black exploitation is a little bit more uh, nuanced and specific. I'm kind of treading water a little bit. I don't actually know much uh, about what we're about to do. You should probably keep your head underwater. Well, I mean, I'm I'm kind of similar to you. I think 
you and I are going to be more knowledgeable about where black exploitation evolved to by the mid to late 90s. Because, I mean, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown is like a direct continuation of black exploitation. If you've ever seen Do the Right Thing, Boys in the Hood, like those types of movies are, again, direct antecedents of black exploitation. And that term black exploitation. From what I know, again, and because like I don't think I've ever even watched a single one that came out in the 1970s, is that it has a lot to do with like the characterization of black people in those movies, the tone that was set with it, the types of stories that were being told, but also the music. I mean, you mentioned Isaac Hayes. I think the music is as important as the films itself. So I think there's a lot that's kind of wrapped up into it. Again, similar to you, like I have heard the name Shaft. I first heard the theme from Shaft in a weird, very white person way uh, in that uh, I was watching the Academy Awards one year and, you know, they like to do their little like tributes every so often. And it's like, let's give a tribute to the last 50 years of the best original song. And so then they had people come out and sing like, when you wish upon a star from Pinocchio and like all these other like famous songs. And they ended with theme from shaft with Isaac Hayes coming out. And I remember there's like this dry ice. So there's like all this smoke around him singing from shaft and like people like freaking out in the audience. That was literally my introduction to shaft. And then I've seen clips and stuff from the movie here and there, but I had no sense of like, is this well liked? Is this something that you goof on? I, I like I just didn't I didn't understand like how it fit into the wider view of like popular culture and movies in general. You also think that Cheesinicken is the height of food culture. Uh, so I'm really excited. Like one of the things that I am so excited that we are being forced to watch the year 1971 by this machine is that I think I'm going to be crossing off a lot of these films. And even uh, looking at some movements in film that I just don't really have any, I don't know, history with, uh, for lack of a better word. So this is great for me uh, that I get to watch this movie for, for the very first time. I don't know. How about you? Like, I don't think we've really even said or said it on the podcast yet. But for 1971, is there anything you're excited about? I mean, it would be great to get a grounding of uh, what 1971 was like in North America. I think... I'll have to ask my dad. I think my dad comes to Canada in like 1972. Mm. So there's, a, there's just a fascination with uh, history. And I'm excited yeah. that we're going to hold hands and walk through this journey together, Kyle, That's and right. learn about a dead era. As far as movies, I don't know. There's a lot of uh, pretty big movies that came out this year. I think mm -hmm. when we didn't look at the movies to come... Um, the one movie that sticks, two movies that stick out in my head that uh, one, which I owned for a long time, which, which was French Connection. So it'll be interesting right. to see if I still like that. I suspect uh, not for some reason. Do you know the connection between Shaft and the French Connection? No. Written by the same guy. Oh, the uh, book author? Oh, interesting. Uh, not the books that they're based on, but the screenwriter is the same person. Oh. So we'll, t we'll, we'll talk about Mr. Ernest Tidyman here in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, whether Shaft was supposed to be a black person or not. But um, mm -hmm. Clockwork Orange, which is mm -hmm. frightening because uh, every time I've watched that movie more than once, but it makes me uh, feel gross. Weirdly, it's the same feeling you get when you watch the Muppet movie. And um, and I've never watched George Lucas's first movie um, mm -hmm. or second, first? First full-length feature right. as far as I know. THX. Yeah. So um, we'll see. It's going to be weird. Do you think THX ha has been released with THX sound? 
At this point, absolutely. Have to it's have been re, yeah, recut. It's in Dolby Atmos. They've reshot it with new computer <laughs> graphics, I'm sure. Because George well, Lucas is a meddler. He's a tinkerer. He's a tinkerer. Is the nice way of saying that. <laughs> you you say meddler, I say tinkerer. He likes to, <laughs> he likes to tinker with his films. <laughs> I they said tinkler and I was like, he's not in no. a urinal. Yeah. Although you could say he's pissing on his own movie. No, I'm <laughs> well, sorry. Well, yeah. he's definitely pissing people off. So... I'm excited to jump into this movie a little bit more in depth with you, some of the history of the film. I'm excited to uh, hear from you with your uh, penchant for not liking ultraviolence necessarily, how you uh, take to what was ultraviolent in 1971. Uh, so let's do it. Let me go. I'm going to thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking about Shaft. Hey everyone, just Kyle breaking into the conversation to tell you about some of the people that help make this show continue to go. Uh, nothing quite like a white guy and an Asian guy talking about things that affect the black community. I think we're the two best people to have this conversation. Luckily, next week, not to uh, foreshadow too much, but I think there's going to be a much more rich conversation around some of these topics that you'll hear later in the episode. Uh, one thing I wanted to get out in front of here a little bit is in a moment, you're going to hear a conversation about representation that Dave and I have uh, and our different kind of perspectives on that. Uh, one thing I don't want to get lost because there was a point I was going to make and then kind of don't fully explain uh, is the idea of uh, being gay or bisexual uh, as compared to the black experience, especially in the 1970s. I don't want to make it seem like I'm conflating those two things. I, I was more using it as my own experience, somewhat having an understanding of not being represented in the media that I'm watching. But what I don't want it to make it sound like is that racism is the same thing as homophobia. Both of them are, of course, forms of bigotry, but not the same thing. And they each come with their unique challenges. I want to make that very clear. I, over a bunch of more episodes in this season, I think we're going to get really into that topic in particular. And hopefully as we listen and you join us on this journey, we'll have a deeper conversation. That conversation will continue to be enriched. Uh, with successive episodes. So listen to more of these podcasts is what I'm really trying to say. However, I should tell you that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. When you make a gift to the Calgary Foundation, it's a gift that keeps on giving. The Foundation's knowledgeable staff will provide advice on the community's most pressing needs, keeping your interests at heart and helping you give back in a way that is meaningful to you. Your contributions are invested in an endowment fund that provides a permanent source of funding, allowing you to make an impact now and forever. If you're a professional advisor creating a giving plan for a client or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org or check out Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. This week, Calendary vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode 
Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a pod power shout out to Glass Bookshop Radio. Glass Bookshop Radio is the official podcast of Glass Bookshop. Founded by Jason Purcell and Matthew Stepanek, Glass Bookshop is an independent bookseller in Edmonton, Alberta that focuses on Canadian writing with special attention to LGBTQ2S plus and BIPOC writers and the independent publishers who help to produce their work. Tune in to Glass Bookshop Radio for interviews with their favorite writers, publishers, and readers. To listen and read more, head to glassbookshopradio.com. Boy, I have a lot to talk about. I have like so you can't see this, Dave, because I'm shielding it from you over here on the other side of the uh, spaceship. But uh, I have written like three pages of notes <laughs> about this film <laughs> specifically, but uh, completely non-spoilery as possible. What are your immediate thoughts about the movie Shaft? What are my thoughts about the movie Shaft? Number one, it's definitely the 70s. Uh, it's definitely New York. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely gritty, uh, which I think <laughs> yeah. will be a theme of 70s movies in general. I can't remember if we've spoken about some of these movie coding things and the uh, implied morality of previous eras. You can tell that they kind of wag their middle finger at all of that yeah. uh, and try to very, cross very... off the list. Within the first, what, 30 seconds, you have Shaft flipping off a car as he walks across the street. So, I mean, like, yeah, when we were giving that context setting of stuff that probably wouldn't have happened in 1965 and now is happening in 1971, it's like, whoa, okay, this is is not your grandmother's uh, gritty New York drama. It's not as sleek and as well-planned as modern movies tend to be. Correct. Uh, and so it has a real almost, yeah, a B-movie feel. So if you're looking for something that's just going to kind of gut punch you, have some moments where you might laugh. If I punched you in the gut, I would laugh. And will kind of challenge your ideas about what people in bygone eras like to go to the theater to see, then you, you may enjoy uh, steeping into this. And then, of course, if you're going to look at this from a social, economic, racial, colonial historical lens there's a lot in here there's, there's a gold mine of discussion whether oh, yeah. or not the movie itself is telling the most constructive narrative about those situations we can discuss because um, i'm not sure if it actually represents something positive or not but uh it's definitely mm. a landmark event and you can feel it that it's it's very very yeah. pointed to to rub it in your face uh in general i think the discussion of this film can have like two different discussions, which is its place in like cinematic history versus do I actually like this film? I think those are two separate conversations that you can have for me. And and I understand now having done some research on it, it's because of the very, very low budget this movie had and was given to be made that there is the aesthetics that I'm going to say right now, I'm not a huge fan of the look of this movie but they you know had pocket change to make this so i kind of understand uh versus the actual storyline and the uh, dialogue that is being spoken in this film that i actually really very much enjoyed here is where we're at dave as you know we actually did a huge break in between when we went to watch this movie versus us talking about this movie because i've spent some some time with the shaft franchise just can i just cut it there i mean you've just with shafts yeah with, with the shaft uh i 
went and listened to the audio book of the original novel Shaft. <laughs> of course, I did. have watched. I have watched this movie, the original, you know, original Shaft from 1971. Okay, yeah. I have watched its two sequels that came out in the subsequent years. So 1972's Shaft's Big Score and 1973's Shaft in Africa. I then watched the 2000 film Shaft, which stars Samuel L. Jackson, which is both kind of a reboot as well as another sequel to the franchise. And then I watched the 2019 film, which is also conveniently called Shaft, uh, that has Samuel L. Jackson uh, in it again uh, with another actor, Jesse something and now i'm blanking know on it existed yeah anyways there's actually five films in the shaft franchise all that stuff all that feature richard roundtree at some point <laughs> making a cameo appearance uh, appearance inside of it so i feel like i'm very well versed in the shaftiverse never say that out loud ever again and the, what's fascinating to me is the the aesthetics question is solved in literally the very next year 1972 when it's given like three or four times the budget that the original movie had, because that is like, oh, this looks like a movie. <laughs> this does not look like something that's been like drugged through like dirt and grime and then put up onto like a, a grindhouse theater screen. I ended up liking Shaft way more than I thought I was, to be honest with you. And I think a lot of it is down to Richard Roundtree's performance. I really do think that had they tried to pick someone else, potentially, you know, tried to do try to do even more with this story than what they were able to. I, I, I think this needs to stay on that ground level in New York City, pounding the pavement, finding the clues and solving the crime. I, it, all, it all works for me. I just wish it looked better. <laughs> and that's like me being, I feel a little bit mean, but it's like it kept was this barrier for me. It's like fully being like, oh, I love this film because it's just like it's kind of ugly to look at. You know, it's funny. I think we're going to disagree for the first time ever on this podcast. I actually didn't like this movie very much. Okay. Um, I think that there, like you said, there are core elements to the story, which are very interesting and uh, kind of fun. Yeah. I, honestly, at the end of the movie, I, I felt very confused. There are parts, I won't say that are offensive, but that are just so egregious in trying to state a point about you know racial stereotypes and just uh, all of that stuff is so confusing for me because uh, I am not living that life. The uh, not just you know using racial terms, but how everybody's separated into these like specific bubbles. You know, mm. black people only hang out with black people. White people only hang out with white people. The Italian people are here. I I understand in a topical sense where racism sort of exists, but in a movie, it was hard for me to kind of mesh those things together. I got a little bit hung up on uh, what, like, where does Shaft even fit in on this? Is he, mm. he plays all sides against each other. And so, you know, I, it was kind of weird. There's some fun moments. I think it has easily the best, uh, best supporting actor death of all time. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you go on and on about him. Like there's a guy, hip this, hangs is, this, is, this is kind of a, this is kind of a spoiler. Although, it's in the trailer, so I don't find it a spoiler. The guy who gets shot, and then his hips like hang him up on like the on the, uh, the banister, no, and then he falls down. There's to no his way death. that was intentional. I mean, I think that guy actually broke his back. But well, uh, honestly, what this most feels similar to, because of another podcast I listen to, and I, I like to watch the films before they jump into their conversation, which I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to do for us, is uh, I'm watch. I've been watching a lot of bad 1950s horror films recently 
the type of films where I'm convinced that they could only shoot the scene one time and they had to move on because that's all the time they had and all the money they had to spend. So like someone will, you know, hit the wall and you can see like the entire set shake and it's like, well, we're just going to leave it in because we literally can't <laughs> fix this. So we're just going to keep going on. It looks like a, an actor is forgetting his lines. That's all right. We'll figure it out in, in, in the editing process. None of my lines are scripted. That's kind of what this film feels like to me in a lot of ways where it's like, this feels like a first take of a scene and not like we're trying to get this right. Um, and like, we're just going to set the camera up and let's let the scene play out because we don't have a, a money to buy a dolly to like zoom in and out with. Uh, so that's what I mean. It's like that sort of like aesthetic distance for me is it, it prevents me from like being like full throated where the like the next two chef films are way higher budgeted. And then you get to have like some really fun stuff that happens in them. I, I guess to your criticism of the segmentation, this very much, and this is actually what, you know, black critics at the time, as well as even today, will mention about black exploitation as like an entire genre, is like, is this actually good for furthering black causes? And there's going to be the people who have that conversation with like, listen, if you are like, if you were a 50 or 60 year old person in 1971, you would never have seen two black people kiss on film straight up. It never would have happened. And so when you put that in perspective, like let's actually show black people being sexual with each other that have actual love with each other that can be looked at as sexual beings. I think there is a power to that in the context of film. There's also this idea of like end of the sixties into the seventies with the black uh, Panther movement, of course is, is riding strong. Vietnam is raging and stuff like that. So do you see again, a black man who is confident what he is flipping off white people and being like, no, I'm not going to take your shit is in itself a powerful thing. On the flip side of that, when most black exploitation films focus on violence, drug deals, gangsters, that sort of things, like, is that really great representation from another point of view? This actually is true for the Godfather films in many cases like Italian American organizations often say like, we don't really love mob films because it perpetuates the stereotype that all Italians are part of the mob. And in, in, in the same way, a lot of black exploitation would be like, Oh, all black people are either uh, pimps, drug dealers, that sort of thing. I actually do think shaft is kind of the exception to this rule because he's a private eye. He's not like um, the bad person in the film or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know what, what the phrases I'm trying to look for here, but it's it's not in the same way as like another film called like Superfly is another one that came out the year after. Again, hugely popular, but it featured a pimp. That is what the main character is doing. At least in this one, it's like I'm fighting, quote unquote, bad guys and seeking justice. I got into, uh, I guess, an argument with Helen this morning. How? On, on the ship? Uh, how did you talk to her? Uh, FaceTime. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, cause our bleep products <laughs> still yeah. work in space. Cause, uh, that's nice. You know, that's quality craftsmanship. I would <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. Not that we can name, you know, bleep by uh, name, but yeah. that company, you know, researching this concept of black, black exploitation, uh, where that term comes from and what it represented in the seventies, uh, really made me think about, you know, what does it mean to be empowered and be represented? So the, the. Yeah. Sort of argument started when I, when Helen was asking me what I was doing, and I compared this to the recent film Crazy Rich Asians, and this idea that that is empowering for Asian people. 
And, you know, to to our sort of private conversation off camera and you sending me some information about intellectual criticisms from black intellectuals talking about this film and that era, these problems exist where if you go too close to the truth, nobody gives a shit. You go too Mm. far away from it, then you get negative stereotypes. There's a balancing point where uh, something could, in a narrative, be a good role model, not necessarily morally, like in this Christian rhetoric, but like, you know, like an empowered person. I think Black Panther became a very interesting comic book character in the zeitgeist for this reason, because, you know, he's doing everything that we want him to do. He's got moral ethics. He kicks people's ass. He He's uh, sort of anti-establishment. Um, he's rich. He's good looking. That alone, like superheroes alone, that's a whole other conversation. So, we got into yeah. this argument and- Sorry, what was the argument about? Like, So, what, she what were was the saying sides? that, uh, you know, Crazy Rich Asians is an important and good movie. And I refuse to watch it because I think it's just, oh. in principle, it's a piece of shit. But she brought up, uh, which is a fair point, that I have these opinions, that I won't watch it. And in the one um, video we watched together about, uh, I can't remember which director, it wasn't the director of this film, but uh, it was an actor and director being interviewed okay, by yeah, James so uh, I'm going to be leaving two links into the show notes this week. So the one that you're talking about is this uh, public access show that's actually hosted by James Earl Jones. So cool. Uh, before Star Wars, before everything. This is like back in 1972, so just after this movie came out. But he's talking with Ron O'Neill, the actor in Superfly, and then the director, Hugh Robertson, who directed a film called Melinda, also 1972, but had been an editor and stuff before then sort of thing. So yes, if you want to see their full conversation, I highly recommend it because it's actually really fascinating to be a fly on the wall to that conversation. Yeah, that one and and the subsequent one with uh, Charles, whatever, the yeah, professor uh, that. that- the, Charles Woods is him. He's spent a, like a career researching black people on film. Um, so yeah, he has a whole thing about black exploitation, what we think about it now versus what we, what it was like at the time. So I would I would definitely recommend watching both. But uh, so the, in the first uh, sort of discussion, it brings up this idea of where do we get these defining characteristics from militants, from the uh, white sort of lens, from artists. And of course, there's no right answer. Well, obviously, it's from the lamestream media. And so the argument comes because Helen, and this is to her credit, she says that I don't, I guilt people, I don't give movies a chance because I have a very strong, you know, negative opinion about. You don't say. I don't think I've noticed that before on this podcast. And uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. But the the comparison was when this uh, the actor is saying, you know, when um, people from the Nation of Islam or uh, people from the Black Panthers are criticizing films that we make. You know, they have an idea of what a good black role model is, but they're you know a minority, very extreme opinion. Um, but the regular everyday African American in the '70s is living a particular life, and within that, there's so much variance. And so for me, I was thinking about Asian movies, and uh, yeah, like what's his name, John Cho has made movies, uh, Stephen Yuen's mm-hmm. made movies. There are people that are making it outside of the Hollywood blockbuster, but Nobody watches them, right? Like, they're not hits. They're more of these artistic statement pieces. And, and those movies were being made in the 70s too. Just nobody nobody wanted mm-hmm. to watch them. And that's this internal, like, discussion, argument, debate that goes on, which is, do you consistently um, do that type of art that is outside the mainstream that, yes, is probably intellectually stimulating. And for a certain class of people, like, this is, like, what we want to see. or 
do you work within the system and try and change it? And oftentimes the system cannot be changed, but like this is a direct, like this is released by MGM. <laughs> this movie is released by MGM. Yes, it's because they were like almost getting bankrupt. It seems like that's the eternal story about MGM. It, like it's almost on the verge of bankruptcy, but they're like, well, let's just try and uh, make this movie that is basically for black people. And then it's a huge hit and uh, saves the studio sort of thing. Lions are very expensive to feed. That's so, right. I mean, they were already in trouble with their mascot. You know, the idea of exploitation being tied to Black is when this movie blows up, everybody starts making this movie. That's where I think culture runs into this poisonous echo chamber. You know, yeah. and I have my opinions about social media and, and echo chambers, but I don't know, Kyle, like, as a, I mean, this is unfair to say as a white male, but do you find that these um, conversations about needing role models and empowering things, you know, as part of the LGBTQ community. Like, do you, does this stuff upset you? <laughs> Is it something that you are aware of or does it require some prodding from? Mm, uh, what do you mean by upset by? Like upset that they're having the conversation or upset no. that they don't have representation? Yeah. Upset that either they don't have representation or you don't see represent a representation of a character that you identify with. I, I think the Charles Phillips brings this up. Growing up, he only wanted to have uh, you know sex with the white woman, wanted to be a white rich man. That's how I grew up because you know there's no Asian role models on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, but is that I mean, it's poisonous in retrospect, but I didn't know what to be upset about at the time, <laughs> you know? So there's- But isn't that true for anything that gets revealed to you? It's like, oh yeah, like why are we doing it this way? Or why are we approaching it this way? When you finally are kind of showing a different perspective, uh, sometimes you do have to reevaluate. It's like, oh yeah, like why am I doing it? This, this is like the worst uh, possible approach to this. I actually do have to approach it in the LGBTQ lens because if we're talking about white representation that is 99% of what I was given when I was a kid like I cannot even think of a movie when I was growing up that did not feature a white person somewhere inside the cast in fact like that that's the recurring thing is like in Hollywood for the longest time like you'd have one black character but two black characters meant that was a black movie x-rated now right yeah. so like you couldn't release that to white people apparently uh but I mean growing up in the 90s I mean that was like the biggest revelation right as like as a closeted kid yeah it was like not spoken about or if it did show up on like a tv show or movie it was either the butt of a joke or a tragic tragic end like they were dying of aids or something like that like that is literally your two options tragic death or butt of a joke um and i feel like that really started to change by the late 90s and i, I talked about this story which is hilarious in uh you know thing about current day but like roseanne the show roseanne had such a progressive outlook on lgbtq characters at a time that was very important to me where they were shown as being you know incredibly powerful that they were not their lives were not going to end in tragedy that they could hold jobs that they could have love being re uh responded back to them and i feel like that is um uh, only grown since that time there is a bunch of you know gay bisexual lesbian transgender creators who are making content and we've reached a point now which is phenomenal where you can actually evaluate them as like is this a good gay film and this good is this a good film yes it, ha it, it has gay themes inside of it but that doesn't even need to be the focus of the movie <laughs> it's just that, that there's a character that that's just what part of their character actually is so i think that is where it becomes important um where representation becomes important when it's only relegated to a certain idea 
or like I said, like a joke uh, character that you can start to get that internal hatred uh, for yourself. And I think that is what the negative long lasting negative impacts are, which is a long way of saying like that is what I've really enjoyed over like the last few years. Because it seems and this is just one person's opinion. It seems like there is a widening of the net because everything is so fractured online now. But it seems like this widening of like different perspectives, views, talents that I love to see where it isn't just like this is a white person's perspective on insert social <laughs> injustice here. And I think that's important to to be um, cognizant of as well. Yeah, I think we ran into this a little bit with Boys Don't Cry. And and I think when we if we get to the history part that the Charles guy brought up something that apparently is a landmark history thing in the U.S., but I don't know much about it. But this uh, Kerner Commission and uh, mm-hmm. the idea that a committee of white politicians would actually be able to name that there is racial segregation, violence, yeah. um, and economic disparity in, 19, in 1965, and then nobody gave a shit after that. But it, I see nothing problematic with it at all. So that leading into this idea, is, as this Charles fellow uh, brings up, that black exploitation films t- pick up because of this idea of a riot in a, in a theater as opposed to on the streets. And so, I don't know, is it better to have a very extreme counterculture mainstream representations that trigger the next wave like the you know i'm trying to think in the lgbtq like what a big i don't know if it's priscilla in the desert or like what whatever these big sort of movies that are kind of hits um that force people well, to yeah, like it, challenge it, something it, but then in hindsight we're like well was that a good way to put it? You know, like people are hating on Hillary Swank for not actually being transgender. Like, can you actually yeah, like say that, that? I was going to say that's kind of the example that you're getting into. But even like early representation, like there's the original Boys in the Band that's in like 1970 or something, which features gay characters, which is almost impossible to find a copy of nowadays. So like no one watches it. But this is where I think in part why camp is so prevalent in the gay culture Right. Because you can't necessarily have a character that's explicitly gay in your films. So you like really glom on to like the exaggerated personas of, say, Liberace or drag queens. And that kind of gets filtered into it. So like this over here is code for this character is gay, but we can't actually say that this character is gay. (laughs) Uh, That sort of thing. Or else, like, again, mainstream audiences won't come because they think that that is what this movie is actually about when it's not. It's about something else. You can read up on this on uh, classic Disney villains and how they're all coded to be <laughs> gay caricatures, <laughs> which is really fascinating. No, you know, I, I, I'm just harping on this a little bit because maybe one of the problems, I mean, you, it's an interesting comparison. So the campy, pantomimed gay character, uh, but then, you know, us who are not taking that as a literal, literal representation of what all gay people must be like. Well, yeah, and so well, I mean, you see, the exploitation becomes oh, every everybody who's rich must be a drug dealer, you know, and everybody who's uh, fighting on the streets must be a hard nosed asshole womanizer, you know. All cops are bad because they're all racist. Like, there are a lot of things that come out of this conversation that are uh, stressful. <laughs> well, I, well, I think what what it comes down to, and this was also part of that conversation with um, James Earl Jones, is. We kind of use that as an umbrella term, but really there's a lot of like subsections. We say black films or black exploitation films, but not every single one of them is exactly the same or trying for the same thing. Uh, same thing if I say like, oh, you know, Asian cinema. Like, what does that really mean? Because there's 
Obviously, you can break that apart into different countries, Japanese, Korean, Chinese. But even within there, there's different stratas of film. Uh, so sometimes it's a nice like catch all term, but it doesn't really help with like fine point conversations because every film does kind of need to be taken uh, on its own on its own. Uh, so let's do that with Shaft. So let's do some background. That was quite the segue. Shaft opened on June 25th, 1971. It is currently rated 6.6 on IMDb, 66 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, from 42 critics, it's at 88%. And then from 12,104 users, it's at 68%. So a bit of a divide between critics and, say, uh, users. This movie is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent it from iTunes, or again, you can rent it from YouTube as well. A recurring thing that I feel is going to happen a lot here in 1971 is that there's not a lot of good information about uh, box office. <laughs> uh, so this movie was budgeted at $500,000. So it was a pretty low budget film, and it would go on to make $12 million total. So huge return on investment, for sure. Uh, if you uh, account for inflation, that's as if a movie made $76 million today. So um, pretty, pretty decent for, again, like a low-budget to mid-budget film. Its plot description from IMDb is, Cool, black, private-eyed John Shaft is hired by a crime lord to find and retrieve his kidnapped daughter. It stars Richard Roundtree as John Shaft, Moses Gunn as Bumpy Jonas, Christopher St. John as Ben Buford, and Charles Coffey as Vic Androzzi. Anything you want to say about those actors? Uh, there's actually not a lot of information. I think um, it, what's great is a lot of theater and uh, acting training behind them. The uh, mm -hmm. What's the... Oh, Bumpy. Bumpy. I was going to say Bugsy. I'm like, that's Warren Beatty. He's, yeah, theater trained. He's got like Obies. He was nominated well, for an Emmy. Yeah. Like, you know, he's just good. like, um, fantastic. Oh, I've forgotten the actor's name, but the guy who played Blackula, you know, the Black Dracula. Uh, so the guy who played Blackula is literally like Shakespeare trained level actor. Like, he is a phenomenal stage actor. And really, the only work he could get was, yes, in like B movie black exploitation films. Richard Roundtree is interesting. I mean, obviously, if you watch the movie, he started off as a model because uh, he's gorgeous. He's got that charisma. He was in Seven, which is weird, yes. right? I didn't I yeah, start to rewatch it. I have to look yeah, it up. He, he does show up uh, in little bit parts here and there. He's in 90210. Um, That's weird, still, too. Yeah, still working today. Like He still does a little bit parts here and there. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he had breast cancer. Yes, he did. So that's the thing, male breast cancer, which I just had to learn about. Um, but he's just, he's a survivor, and that was like ninety three. So yeah, he he beat that thing up. I'm more interested in the director. The director's fascinating. I uh, yeah, I think he would be only because of his like photography background that yeah. apparently he has. And it wasn't just a photographer. I mean, he was like a culture defining. Uh, yeah, which I had no idea about. This is this is the fascinating part. Okay, let's let's get into that. So I have like this short novel that I have <laughs> prepared. <laughs> Uh, so this movie was written by Ernest Tidyman and John D.F. Black, based on the novel by Ernest Tidyman, directed by Gordon Parks. So let's start with that, Ernest Tidyman. And I'm only going to mention this because it becomes way important later. Uh, he was white. He was a white guy. And maybe because his father was a journalist too, one of his first jobs was as a copy boy at a newspaper. He grew up through World War II, but enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1946 in the Public Relations Department then transitioned and be, was a journalist for 20 years. 
but mostly covered crime. That was his beat. Cover crime on New York City. After that 20 years of being a journalist, he says, I don't really want to be a journalist anymore. I just don't, I don't want to do it anyway. So he tries to become a novelist, a fiction novelist. So his first book, Flower Power, about hippies, hippie movement, that sort of thing, uh, completely flops. Nobody buys this book. But his editor is like, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you write a mystery novel, but use the grittiness of your crime reporting that you know about and kind of marry them together? That would become Shaft. Now, this is where it gets weird, because from multiple reports and reviews that I've read, is that apparently Shaft was originally white. But the book you can buy right now from Amazon.com or .ca, or the audiobook that I happen to listen to, that is 100% not true. He is not a white guy in that book. So I don't know if it was like edited after the movie came out or, or what's going on there. Would you say they might have George lucas it? Might have George lucas it, <laughs> which is weird that they have this character named Jar Jar in it. It's <laughs> a really weird addition and right halfway through the I'm book. I'm looking at these pages and they look, they just don't hold up. This digital yeah. effect. Yeah. What, but, but what a lot of people will say is that like they know of Ernest Heidemann from Writing Shaft and then they meet him and they're like, He's this dweeby little white guy. They're like, whoa, like, how does that make sense? Uh, Tideman himself, this is a quote right from him. He said, reading black fiction, you see that the central figure is either superhero or super victim. The blacks I knew were smart and sophisticated. And I thought, what about a black hero who thinks of himself as a human being, but who uses his black rage as one of his resources, along with intelligence and courage? So something that he did which I couldn't verify if this was like super revolutionary for the time period or like if this started a craze or what. But he does it what a lot of writers do nowadays. And he sold the rights to the book before the book was even published. So they started work on the movie before the book was out in stores for people to buy. Um, one of the people who read that early copy of the book and, and pitch for the movie was this uh, film producer called Philip D'Antoni, who hired him to then write the other 1971 film that he wrote, The French Connection, which would go on to win Tidyman an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. So even though he has these two huge successes in 1971, we have Shaft, we have uh, The French Connection, he was kind of unhappy with the final products, especially for Shaft. He really wasn't happy with how it ended up on screen. So he became a producer, opened up his own production company, and then died kind of unexpectedly in 1983. Uh, because of a perforated ulcer, oh like God. just as his career was really starting to like really gain steam, like he Whoa. died. So Shaft is like this perfect storm of him writing at the very beginning of what would be called the black exploitation movement. Uh, which, if, fun fact, like we're talking about this huge movement, it only lasted four years. Mm -hmm. They really only term like from 1971 to 1975 is like the black exploitation movement, and there's other films that will fit that category through the intervening decades. But like the huge like. 200 plus films that are considered black exploitation movement happened in like four years. There's another credited screenwriter, as they said, John D.F. Black. From what I understand, because Ernest Heidemann had never wrote a screenplay before, this is why they brought uh, John Black in to help out. Also, another white guy. So because John Black was knowledgeable in writing screenplays, he came on, helped shape the script up. But John Black is best known for his work on Star Trek. Because he wrote during the first season of the original Star Trek series and then came back to write for the first two seasons of The Next Generation, but really stuck to a lot of TV. So Mary Tyler Moore Show, original Charlie's Angels, Hawaii Five-0, Mission Impossible, all the 
big shows from like the 60s, 70s and into the 80s. Gordon Parks is your guy. He's the director, is a black man and is credited as being the man who made Shaft black. So while they were in the script writing phase, he's like, I think this guy should be a black guy. He says, though, that his decision really wasn't necessarily there to impact the black consciousness, but simply to have a fun film that people could go and see on a weekend and watch a black guy winning. So he knew he was walking this fine line about making a film that was appealing to the black urban uh, population as well as white youths who are going to go and watch this movie. All that wraps up into part of the success of this movie is given to MGM for hiring Uniworld, which was a black advertising firm. And it would prove to be successful because Uniworld specifically used black power imagery and terminology in its advertising, making it look like black people had somehow like infiltrated the Hollywood system and had taken over MGM, which was like far from the truth. This is why in the trailer, it ends off with like shaft, hotter than bond, cooler than bullet. And then however you want to term black exploitation, this is considered either the third, fourth, or fifth black exploitation film, depending on how you want to frame it. Talk to me about Garden Parks a little bit more. Like how did he shape photography? Also, and I say, I don't want to spend too much time, but I will say this. He has that typical sort of impoverished background, fascinating story, you know, born poor and his, he's got like 14, 15 siblings. And he's, farm. is he still alive or did he just he, pass away? He died. Yeah. In 2006. So not just, oh, okay. but he was like 80 something when he passed away. His mother dies when he's like a tween, like 13, 14, yeah. and he ends up like homeless. And so he, his sort of adulthood comes through all these like random jobs because he grew up in a segregated town where he was told that there's no point in going for education because you're black, you'll never make it. Those sound like fun people to be around. So he ended up working these flop houses, et cetera. And one Mm -hmm. of them had a library and that's where he started reading books. And then he bought himself a camera and turns out he was so naturally talented at photography that the developing studio where he was getting his uh, negatives done, they were like, you need to, (laughs) you need to take portraits. And some of his portrait work was uh, found by was it Joe Lewis's wife? And this catapults him into this sphere. He's like working for the government, he's working for newspapers. He becomes a staff photographer for magazines. And his photographs are all sort of civil unrest, portraiture, celebrities, uh, civic leaders. I mean, this guy's like in the forefront of all of these big movements that are happening in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is, I only bring that up, A, because apparently when uh, one researches American uh, photography, African-American photography, he's apparently the only guy that comes up anymore um, because his body of work is considered definitive. He's, I've seen some of the pictures online and dude made fucking cool pictures, but I only bring all of that up because I keep thinking about that in terms of making Shaft. I mean, this is a guy that, un- if anyone understood the uh, experience and political system and the environment in which he was being tasked to make a movie, it's Gordon Parks. Like he, mm-hmm. he knew exactly what he was doing with the fifty thousand, whatever five hundred thousand dollar budget. So uh, within the uh, constraints of what he was given, and so, I, you know, when you brought up critics versus users, you know, when you do the digging, this movie is essentially kind of a masterpiece. When you yeah, watch yeah. it as a viewer, it's like a B-roll throwaway action film, right? And it is a fascinating thing to learn about Gordon Parks in that context. And then going back to remembering what I saw in this film and thinking about, did I even interpret that scene correctly? Was there, was there something more underneath that that he's trying to push me with that I just didn't, like I couldn't even put my 
you know, feet in because I, I have no idea what it's like to grow up homeless in the 30s as a young black boy. You know, like it's it's like weird. I, I think it's just so hard for us to internalize how provocative and revolutionary this probably would have felt to a modern audience in 1971. Although I will say this, one of the things that I thought was incredibly interesting is like we did an entire season on the year 1999. I don't think even in 1999 there was this many black characters in one movie. No. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, as much as this was like this watershed moment, yes, it definitely pushed a lot of like black creators into the creative field and like inspired a whole generation to start making their own stuff as well. But boy, does Hollywood move at a snail's pace, like to try and get up to that same level that this kind of just did. I don't even think it's Hollywood. I, I watched this one, I think I've brought this up before, but you know, this sociological pattern of how slow social evolution actually is. So, you know, any of these systems that we take for granted, whether it's religion, uh, economy, etc., these are not overnight things. And I think one of the challenges we face right now is this entitlement to instant gratification. We want a movie like Shaft to come out and everybody just be woke and walk right. around yeah, and be yeah. like, oh, love, you know, every piece, we fuck this up, everybody get together, you know, uh, equal representation, but that's just not how human beings are designed. So, the, uh, part of the argument I had with Helen was, not really even an argument became the discussion sort of cataloging, in our case, Asian movies. And as you brought up, in the mainstream list of where we pulled 1999, absolutely, there are very, very few uh, representational movies. But the late 90s also had a, a surge, a, I don't know if it's a resurgence of uh, sort of cinema for black people. And you get... Um, you know, this is where like the early 2000s, you get a lot of these, well, I just, I used to watch these movies in Scar. I just don't remember their names, but like where Tay Diggs and, and uh, mm -hmm. Tyrese and all these guys start um, getting their own films and building. Well, even like, uh, Baby Boy he, he's Friday. become kind of a bite of the joke too. Well, like Barbershop and sure, that, that barbershop, kind of stuff too. Yeah. But I mean, I, I was going to say like Tyler Perry is often derided a lot, yeah. but it's like, again, he's not making movies for white people <laughs> like that. And I think that's the pushback that he gets a lot of the times. It's like, he, these movies aren't for you. So like, I, I like that he pushed, like I, I can't watch them of, of course, because I don't understand the context. But what I do like is when he's interviewed, because he's a very intelligent guy. Yeah. They just flat out say it. He's like, yeah, you think it's bad? I don't give a fuck. It's not made for you. You know, we made a yeah. hundred million bucks <laughs> because there are this many African-American or people who identify with this lifestyle, this oppression that will watch these uh, tropes and find it humorous and everybody else can go fuck themselves. And then he'll be in Gone Girl and you'll be like, oh, he can actually act. So Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> Shows up for like five seconds in Star Trek and it's like, oh, okay, I guess he's here. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, to that first thing we were talking before, our, our historic preamble, maybe one of the problems with humanity, this is getting very broad. <laughs> wow, is, okay. Uh, Strap in, everyone. Is uh, the seeing is believing problem. So we create a film like this where we use an attacking trope. So we've got uh, a drug dealer who's uh, cr who's created by crafted by this Shakespearean actor, and he's so campy and he's so over the top and he's so cruel, but he also cries and he kills people. When someone just sees that, you're going to automatically create a box and say, "This is what." let's say, a black godfather looks like. This is how they act. This is the only way they make money. And then the four rights, uh, Black Panther-esque civil rights uh, cousin or friend of Shaft 
Yeah. He comes yeah. off as super naive. He's he's broke, clearly sleeping on people's couches, but he like he like believes in idealism. It's so weird because everybody gets compartmentalized. If I don't compartmentalize, then how do I keep my prejudices? But again, knowing that this is uh, created by Gordon Parks, there's an intent, I think, in that to surprise people and to make people question where they fit in. But I don't ever think these are supposed to be literal representations, but I I, I no, don't know but that. I mean, the, the, yeah. yeah, talking in the year 2021, I do not look at this as like a literal, trans, literal translation of what was going on in the early 70s. But I do think it is taking the mentality and the feelings of what were going on in the 70s to craft a film that discusses it. I want to talk about three things that I noticed from this film that I was surprised by. One of them is an actual quote from the book that I think is actually transcribed really well which is that shaft is walking around and there's a little narration going on in his head in the book it says this generation was white and weak with no hope of withstanding the hardship of becoming human and i really do think that somehow uh, richard roundtree really internalized that feeling because i think he just suffers no fools in this movie it's like i am what i am and if you're too weak to figure it out then sorry um which gets, gets even more so in the later editions uh, of Shaft. I felt that this, what was surprising about this is like how much this reminded me of like the very first James Bond film, not in tone or anything like that, but it's like, this feels almost quaint in it's like depiction of like, I'm fighting justice. And like, I'm going to do that by swinging on a rope through a window. And like in the first James Bond movie, like Q gives him a gun. And that's what he goes to his mission with. And like, that's it. And then you kind of see like how that could evolve into like a huge franchise from the day. But they talk about tanks and troops on Broadway if we allow these riots to go on uh, in a time when we're recording this where, you know, there was like insurrection that happens in the U.S. Capitol. So I thought that was fascinating. Lastly, I think we should have a whole conversation about the gay bartender because <laughs> one in the book, I got really frustrated because they use, and I'm sorry for a word I'm about to use, they use the word faggot so much in that book. I'm like, okay, we get it. In this movie, I, and I don't know if this was a Gordon Parks suggestion or who it came from. I actually think the, the gay bartender is actually pretty well represented. <laughs> he is who he is. People are coming and drinking and even swats Shaft on the ass. And he's like, well, whatever. <laughs> like he like just takes it and kind of goes along with it. Like I was shocked by that, to be perfectly frank. Because I see that bartender come up i'm like oh like absolutely it's this is gonna go right. it's gonna go like him calling him a faggot and then like shooting him or something like that that's literally how i thought that scene was gonna go those are the moments i think that the movie entertained me the most which is this sense of a lived-in world so he goes to this dive bar to find the, that part's campy like finding mafia mm -hmm. assassins who are just right. hanging out and then that's a, a, such a james bond thing where he taps his friend, the bartender, switch places to like go covert mm -hmm. and just figure him out. But like you said, you know, even when he's in the coffee shop and it's so weird, but they've got the stoned out hippie girl serving coffee and she's just such a bad actress, but she's like not there. Um, yeah. These feel like experiences that whoever wrote it, even if it's earnest or whatever, they're kind of trying to show what New York was like for them at this time, as opposed to this, uh, you know, Hayes Code-esque New York is this Broadway and lights and everybody's wearing top hats and, you know, living in penthouse apartments. Like I should point out that I am wearing a top hat. With the exception of the three different tones of women he sleeps with, which I think is intentional too. You've got this woman living, uh, the first woman he sleeps with is in this penthouse apartment yeah. by herself waiting to have sex with Ch Shaft. 
the second woman, uh, I don't know if he had sex with her, but like there's a woman that looks like maybe she's his wife. And then there's a white mm. prostitute that uh, gay bartender wingmans for him. And, yeah. uh, you know, all of this stuff's fascinating in hindsight. But during the viewing of it, I'm so caught. Even, uh, you know, what scene I love the best, the opening sequence of uh, him walking through the streets, you know, mm-hmm. not just he flips off the cab, but he just, you can tell that that's not a controlled set. And he just walks out onto the street. I remember when I was growing up in Toronto, that was like a, a thing that was developing where, if you were a city guy, you try to take country, you jaywalk, you just got to get to where you need to be and you don't give a fuck what's going on. But then when I moved to Hamilton for one year of a quote unquote university, nobody did that because in a smaller town, there's different connections more, you know, it's just a different feeling. Here, it's different again in Calgary. Uh, but watching that in New York- When, you're, when you're walking the mean streets of Young and Bloor, all right, <laughs> as a young kid, you have to take charge. Well, downtown Toronto. You know, I got that feeling a little bit when he walks in front of like the wrong, the light's not green. He's walking in front of all these fucking cabs in New York City. Uh, they're two footing on their brakes, right? I, I think all of that's like candid. I don't think that's a planned shot. I don't think there's a, a stunt man in that car that's like told to honk at him so he can flip him off. There are a couple of scenes where they're walking with him where you could tell he's just on the streets in New York. There are no extras. He's just... I mean, that's why some of the cuts are so raw because they probably yeah, yeah. just had a little, you know, handheld camera walking backwards with him and then they just yeah. use it as B-roll, just, right? Just so, walk around New York, Richard, and we'll figure it out. Side note, when I watched the uh, that show about Elf and I found out that Will Ferrell did the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, with for comedy, oh. you know, that stuff's interesting. It makes it more uh, visceral and less controlled as opposed that's, that's to- That's what it is. Like, again, I've already- discussed how i don't really like the aesthetics of the movie but i love the content of the movie like richard rentry just has this aura about him that i was actually kind of shocked that he didn't really act before this or at least not very much because he doesn't feel that way with maybe some of the other actresses who appear in this film they're like ooh, probably your first movie and one thing that i also love i love any movie that does this is like people executing a plan really really well uh right so like the chips are down he's been attacked he's like okay Here's how we're going to get this girl back. And he lays out the plan and then they execute the plan and it goes really well and he gets uh, what, he, what he wants. And what's was frustrating me to watch the rest of the Shaft franchise is that that's never, ever addressed ever again in that every other film essentially ends in a gun battle where it's just like firing back and forth. It's like, no, like this is like what was really cool about Shaft is that he came up with a plan, executed it and got what he needed. And yes, he can use his gun if he needs to, but it's like, it's more like, I'm smart and I know what I'm doing and seeing that expertise and understanding that he left the police force because he knew I can't get actual justice if I'm if I'm part of the police. I think that there's some of these fascinating things that we're still struggling with and dealing with in a modern context. That is, I don't know, this movie uh, just has so much of that like packed into it with the shell of it being, yes, like a grimy B-movie. At the end of the conversation with Helen this morning, one of the things that we, conclusions I suppose we got to is we we brought up that we are revisiting the uh, Fast and Furious franchise. And so yeah. talking about well, these role models- Asian representation right there. I mean, we watched four and Han's in it for like 30, 30 seconds. Well, I mean, and the director is also- Yeah, he's Taiwanese, which is a country yeah. that last episode you didn't know existed. So um, all joking aside, it is interesting where we- ask ourselves like, why do we like a movie like Fast and Furious, Ocean's Eleven? And I think exactly to your point, when we're looking for role models, it can either be something we're intentionally chasing or something that reflects something about ourselves. So 
in this movie, that's another strong scene. This heist is essentially a heist. Probably not as good as the movie Tower Heist, though. I don't know if it's shot very well uh, and and explicit enough that you even understand what the plan is ought, mm. like meant to be because things do go, often go wrong. But I'm not surprised that in the subsequent sequels they move away from that because. America also has this pull that what they want is gore, violence, and shock, right. as opposed to intellectual sort of structure. And whenever you get like uh, Ocean's Eleven is a great example, the remake. It's fun, not just because it has the A cast and the camaraderie, but that is an obscenely impossible plot. Like the heist doesn't make any sense, but of course they're going to pull it off. So you have fun because you're like, I wish I was that smart. I wish I was that good looking. I wish I could do that. So Shaft, you're watching it. And I'm going to presume that if I'm a black male in 1971, I'm like, I wish I could tell someone to go fuck themselves. And I wish I could like beat the shit off some guy that's giving me, you know, hassling me about this, that, and the other thing. I mean, you could just start doing that if you wanted. Pull off a heist when I need to rescue a girl. It's fascinating. But that's not the popcorn thing in the States. Popcorn devolves then into how much blood can I spill? How many bullets can I put into somebody's face? It'll be interesting too uh, if we do history. What's happening in 72, 73, 74 for those sequels in white cinema and whether it, it parrots that a little bit just to try to make well, money? I mean, I, I brought it up here in that I think that is what the interesting thing is if you try and compare these to the James Bond films, because the idea was that they wanted to keep making sequels uh, to Shaft and then the third one really bombed and so they stopped making them but i mean we're getting into the roger moore era of james bond which is such a cartoon character my opinion maybe but I, i'm not a big fan of the roger moore uh james bond films but he's such an exaggerated character and so much less realistic than what shaft is trying to go for that yeah it seems to be doing these completely separations it's like almost trying to be like hey remember when movies were fun like come to james bond and have a fun time and we'll have a sex scene which is like roger moore kissing a girl and then fade to black and then here it's like we're gonna get explicitly sexual with Others, our characters but, yeah yeah i mean it's the counter counter culture right and mm -hmm. i think when the reestablishment of the what is it the mpa but new codes yeah. come in because well, of these yeah, we're, movies yeah, there was no ratings for like a couple of years and we're just getting back into rating films again. Yes. Um, you know, the other thing I was thinking about when you brought up James Bond is James Bond, as much as they're similar, James Bond is still backed by a white established uh, protocol. Yeah. He's still a 100%. rich white person. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. And Shaft gets caught in the middle because he's not a villain. He's clearly a superhero, but he's at war with everybody. Right, he yeah. doesn't have a support from the black community. He doesn't have support from the uh, white establishment. He's got a network of support with his co-conspirators and his uh, the people he can rely on, his network. But he's he's a solo predator, and uh, that's a difficult thing to create new plots for. This is the problem with sequels. We should do a whole episode on the idea <laughs> Just of sequels. sequels yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot I have to say about the Shaft sequels, but we're <laughs> quickly running out of time. I will just say very quickly. The third is actually kind of my favorite, not in, again, content. I just think it's the best made of the three films. And it gets into some really interesting territory of like with colonization and like, because he literally does go to Africa to infiltrate like a child, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a slavery child, ring. Child slavery. Uh, uh, yeah, type of thing. So it's like, it's getting into things that were pretty relevant, again, even to, to, the, to this day. Uh, and then the 2000 remake with Samuel Jackson is is fine like there's actually some really cool moments in it but it's like it's such a 2000 movie and, and by that i mean it's like you take this character called shaft whose theme song that plays in that movie as well 
whose first line in the theme from Shaft is, who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? <laughs> he has no sex in that movie whatsoever. It's such a weird tonal shift from the other stuff. And then the, the last one in 2019 is just bad. It's essentially a comedy. They make it like a pure comedy that is making fun of millennials oh. for like an avocado toast. Um, basically is what, I mean, that's, that's me being very dismissive of that movie, but that's kind of what that movie is about. Avocado is great on toast. It's terrible when people tell you to pay $15 for it. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a, that's a different <laughs> method. It's been an interesting, uh, journey through the shaft franchise. Yeah. Let me just say I that. I commend you and your patience. That's a lot of, a lot of content. Yeah, the the last thing I just was going to bring up here, though, is kind of that bringing it back to the Vietnam question. And not even question the reality that Vietnam was still going on and would be going on for the next few years. And I think that's going to impact pretty much every movie that we probably watch for this season that we have to really keep in our mind. Hey, we're in like smack dab in the middle of Vietnam. And that's, you know, they ask him, what's it going to cost to kill this guy? And that character says 10 grand a man. That's what the honky government pays. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the bonus you get for killing the enemy over in Vietnam sort of thing. So I, I think wasn't that... It, wasn't a reference for how much the family gets when the soldier dies? Sorry, yes, yes. Yeah, okay, okay. But I mean, like that's that's what... That's what a human, that's what that's what a human, that's what a human body life costs. is worth, right? right? right. Is $10,000. And I think that it's well, such Sorry, a, what is that adjusted for inflation since you like to... <laughs> oh gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just being a dick. All right, keep going. Um, but I mean, I think that that's one of those times where like, that is such a great line that is so devastating. And I think for potentially a modern audience, it might not even make sense or like they don't really have the um, context of why that is such an important thing to be saying at that point in time. Yeah. And that's, you know, what we could try to do, although it would be a challenge is get some Gen Zers or millennials to watch these movies with us. I will let you in on a secret, and this maybe will be off air. Helen had no idea who James Earl Jones is. <laughs> so you know, it, you do. Your wife is twenty years old. So. so we are, we are always within this box of people who take movies way too seriously. Oh sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it'll be like you said. It would be interesting for someone who's, let's say, you know, if we our friend Matt Mort watched this. Would he catch and think about that line at all? Or would that just be glossed over into just the number and this is how they got, you know, like negotiated some money uh, to fund their caper? Those kind of questions are are interesting. And there's going to be on the flip side stuff we miss all the time. I When I watch modern movies, sometimes I'm just, I feel so old. They're acronyms and like references to events that I cannot comprehend. You're asking me what Twitch is and I have no idea. That, uh, that seems pretty sus, Dave. Pretty sus. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, uh, SMH is an acronym. I didn't know that. People are, keep saying SMH. I'm like, I don't fucking know what that means. I'm essing my H right now. Yeah, apparently you, so. that's a real thing. We're done here. All right. The machine has asked us to wrap this up. So I think we have to get to the two questions we ask every episode, which is, does this movie hold up and is it still culturally relevant? I think it only holds up because it's culturally, culturally relevant. <laughs> so I don't like this movie uh, as mm -hmm. a viewing experience, but I think this movie is, this has to be the longest episode we've ever spoken about a movie. I mean, it's so culturally re relevant. It's such an important yeah. movie, but I didn't think that it was a good one from a movie viewing perspective so if i was going to 
have Emerson with me when he's 15 to watch a film without giving me any of this history, I don't think I would choose this movie to watch with him. Yeah, I don't think no. he'll like it. I think I'm, I'm somewhat there aligned with you. I don't think that the movie itself holds up. I don't. I, like I said, I think there's too many roadblocks in front of it. But I think there is a reason why it keeps getting remade. Like, right? There's three movies called Shaft that seemingly get remade every 20 years. And I think it's probably going to continue to get remade in some form or another every 20 years or so. Would I love there to be the character John Shaft have as lengthy of a film series as James Bond? I think I kind of would. I'd like to see like different adventures and stuff that he would go on. But I think yeah, our conversation about this movie in particular, even though I liked it a lot more than you did, I had a lot of enjoyment out of watching it. I, I think it's coming from that intellectual side rather than the emotional side for me, which I think uh, has to has to be there. I don't, know, I don't know where that leaves us. I'm glad that you watched it. I had a fun time watching yes. it. Yeah, I'm, it's a bucket list thing. I will always have a lot to say now because we actually dug into it. So that's an important hey, Dave, thing. Dave, yeah. we'll always have Shaft. So uh, That's not the first time we've said that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that means we do need to get into our ratings. This is going to be fun. This is our first rating for the year 1971, which means this film, no matter what happens, is going to be both our worst and best rated movie. Number one. So. Number one, no matter what happens. But out of five, Dave, what would you rate this movie? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's always tough after we've discussed it. So I will say that I'll probably be in a 2.5. I think cultural mm -hmm. relevance, it's, yeah, four or five. But I have to drag it down because uh, as a viewing experience, you got you to gotta sit through parts of it. There are some really great scenes as we discussed. But uh, as a movie, I, I didn't really enjoy watching it. If we're talking about the content, like I keep bringing up, for me personally, it probably would be up around like that four. Maybe I could even convince myself to go four and a half with it. But because of the way that it looks and like this really uninteresting directing style, which interestingly enough, Gordon Parks, who did the sequel to this movie, you know, there's camera movements and zooms and like dolly shots and everything. So it's not like he couldn't do it. It's just like, I just don't think they had the funds to do it for this movie. So that brings it in because that in and of itself is like a two, two and a half for me. So I kind of averaged them together. I'm giving this movie a 3.5. So three and a half and then a two and a half believe that's going to have an average of three. So this movie is going to be rated three out of five, right in the middle of the pack, probably at the end of this season. But like I said before, this is going to be both our best and worst rated film for the time being. I wonder for this year, particularly because of all the tumult, is that, can you use that in the scene? You know, with Vietnam, so civil unrest, et cetera, if we ought to consider having a cultural relevance a score on the side in brackets, because uh, I don't know if any of these movies are going to hold up very well visually, uh, but this movie is a very I don't one. think, I, 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 well, this is where I'm going to push back, because again, Shaft's big score made the following year in 1972. I think it looks fine. It looks good. Yes, there's grain and stuff, but it's because they're shooting on film rather than digital and stuff like that. But I, I'm okay with that. I like grain. So that's what Dave and I thought. Uh, what do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page, which is letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and, you know, eventually get back home, 
you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Dave, I guess this means we have to find out what we're going to be watching next week. Let me just push this button here. Whoa, that's a very long message. Next week, Dave, we are going to be watching Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Great. The uh, other half of the coin of exploitation. I can't wait. Oh, Blaxploitation, yeah. yeah. This, that movie came out before Shaft did, so we'll get to see maybe the, another entry point into this whole idea behind exploitation. Let's do it. I know, I know nothing about this movie, so nothing. it's going to be yeah. fun. Like, I knew at least the general concept of what Shaft was. I have no idea what this movie is about, so no. it's going to be fun to jump into it and see what's going on. Are you going to make me a pair of bell bottoms then, or what's going on your with that an- situation? Your ankles are not thick enough. Wow. I'm going to throw you out a window. There's no <laughs> windows on this ship. Wait, are we still on a ship? We're still on a ship. We're on our way back to Earth. Right. In the Dave, deep as and I rich continually fiction. tell you, this is a deep and rich fiction that we have created. <laughs> We're flying back to Earth, and it's going to take us like about a light year to get there. So it's going to take us one year to get back to Earth. At the speed of light is what you're saying. Right at the speed of light. Speed of light. Science. None of my lines are scripted.